Welcome to Fill to Flourish with Luke and Lauren, where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have you here. This is our third episode in our series, Race Conversations, and we have on three good friends of ours. This is the first time we've had three, so that's exciting, too. Um, We're just excited to open up this conversation and share it with you, our listeners. Yeah, we're really excited about this conversation. I think it's a missed topic uh, when we talk about uh, any kind of race conversation, and we're going to talk about people that are multiracial and how, what their place is in this conversation, how they get missed, what they have to say, what they want to add. We have three good friends that we're excited to hear their voice adding into this conversation. Mm, So good. So Marcy, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? (laughs) Sure. Uh, My name is Marcy. Um, I'm 37 years old, mom of three, and I was born and raised in Minnesota. The Midwest in the United States. Um, my father comes from a German Scandinavian background and my mother is Filipino. So I inherited more of my mother's traits and um, am less than five feet tall with dark skin and thick black hair, things I love to do, Zumba, yoga. I'm an educator by trade. So anything involving education and children, um, youth, And yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We have a couple talking next. So Keisha, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay. I'm Keisha Jones and let's see, I am biracial, half black and half white. My mom is African-American and my dad is German. Um, I was born and raised my entire life in Nebraska, um, but I have spent the last 17 years overseas. I have two boys and homeschool, and some of my hobbies or things that I really enjoy are working with vulnerable and exploited women and children and competing in bodybuilding shows. So that's just a little bit about me on the side. Thank you, Keisha. How about Ben? You can, you go ahead. Hi, my name is Ben, uh, Ben Jones. I was born and raised in uh, American Samoa. Uh, My mom is Samoan and my dad is a white guy from Texas. Um, and then I, I've moved, I lived in, uh, Thailand on and off for the past 20 years. Um, also in education, tutoring, English teaching and, uh, charity work here in Thailand, hobbies, uh, playing video games and board games. Awesome. Thank you guys. Again, it's great to have you get this opportunity to know you guys' story more and hear about your your experience as as multiracial and biracial people. So we want to give a caveat. I don't know if we've given this and um, the other two, but just the, the idea that every person is an individual. So while there are themes and um, patterns, that's not the word I want. While there are like similarities in different people, multiracial, biracial people's stories, there's obviously going to be loads of differences too. And so we can totally uh, hold the nuance of all that and just welcome each individual story because every, uh, literally we say on Fail to Flourish that your story matters and we believe that so, so deeply. And it's just, it's so cool to think about how your story may give voice to someone else's story that hasn't been able to quite 
come to the surface. And so it's just a gift that you offer as you share openly. So we're really thankful for all three of you. We're going to jump right in. We would love to hear some thoughts about uh, having a seat at the table, this, this metaphorical concept of a table where all are welcomed and all have equal voice, equal power, and how, you know, that's the ideal, but how that plays out being a, a multiracial person in your experience. To add to that, this episode actually came out of a conversation you had with Marcy, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, that as we were talking, you were talking to her about this uh, series, she mentioned that she, so what she about, asked if- What about us? What about yeah. our, the mixed race people? <laughs> right. People. Like, yeah. is there someone at the table representing us? And I was so, I mean, this wasn't a comprehensive series, but that is a huge missed part. We're obviously not doing every single race on the podcast, but wow, this is such a important, especially with how the world is changing. And there's so many people that fall into the category that you guys live in, that you, you're this combination of two, two worlds, two cultures, two races. It's so important to talk about. And I can't believe we didn't even, we didn't even think about it, but it kind of proved Marcy's point exactly that it's just often missed. Mm -hmm. And that should kind of speak volumes into this conversation. Absolutely. So we're glad to be able to have this conversation. So back to having a seat at the table. Does anyone want Mm -hmm. to jump in um, with thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, when you guys are talking about why we're always never really represented, because I think our identity is a border. We kind of have to if you're like multiracial, you're already used to, especially if like, let's say you're both your parents speak different languages or they're just, you're just always switching back and forth, right? So you're the strongest identity for me personally, a lot of times it's just, you're part of this family. And then you don't get the whole, I'm part of this bigger, huge community. The only one that I found, the only place that I found that was a very, multiracial community was Hawaii because they're they're six deep in their multiracial makeup a lot of them if you don't have Portuguese the Japanese Chinese uh white and like they're all mixed and so everybody just says oh we're all Hawaiian or like we're from Hawaii kind of a thing and then you have like you know one percent Hawaiian it's like very inclusive some you know in a lot of times uh it's a difficult thing to put multiracials into, you know, we're a group. I think the shared experience probably will bring us together. It's just, we don't have as strong as identity as like one, a monoracial a race, like their own, like, oh, this is our way. This is what we do. But I think multiracials, we, our skill set is what brings us together that we can, we jump back and forth. We can mm-hmm. adapt. And that's the skill that we learned. And uh, maybe that's not ever been voiced or it's not voiced often enough. Yeah, I, I've always had the, you're only half, whether it's the, the white side mm-hmm. or the Filipino side, you know, mm-hmm. so not, not feeling like I 100% belong unless I'm able to switch into and really try to bring out that side of me. But even still, it, it, it just feels like I'm a little bit either offbeat to the song or singing in a different key. 
I can hear the music, but I, I don't quite jive with it on either side of it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I see like the, maybe the challenges, but also the strengths in it. I mean, I think it's super cool to even be part of a podcast that is highlighting this. Cause yeah, like without even really thinking about it, we're not somebody that's called to, to ask our perspective about this. And it's just because it's a given, you don't fully it understand it. Like that's just how it, it's like the unspoken, you're not full of something. So you don't fully get it. So you can't really be the voice for it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the strength of it is we, we're kind of like an observer and we also have experiences on both sides. So we have a very unique perspective, but it's not called on ever. Like, I don't remember anybody wanting my perspective for being something to voice something. Cause it's usually always, you need a voice for like a mono culture that's strong. And I don't ever fit in that. Um, but I can see things that some people can't cause I'm kind of like sitting back, but then I, I do experience it too. Like, right. So it's a very unique, there are unique, um, things that you don't ever talk about that you just live and experience, but it's kind of like this unhidden, we even believe it of ourselves. Like we can't really speak for them because we really aren't fully, that's not fully our identity. So we can't really fully speak for, you know, the African-American side or the people of color side in like a race conversation. Cause we're, we're not fully, you know, that one thing. And then we can't be on the other side because we're, we are people of color. So we're not, we don't come from just like that perspective. So at the table, if we are at the table, we're there because we're kind of a bridge, but we're not usually, it's for looks. I, that's how I feel. Yeah. It's, it's for looks, but it's not for our opinion, like ever. If you are multiracial and you're listening to this uh, podcast, I'm sure maybe you're not even aware of your own internal struggle. Like I, I've had really low self-esteem uh, of identity growing up and even as an adult, I had, I feel like I had to choose, you know, there's a chip on your shoulder, like, oh, I'm, I'm no, I'm just Samoan, you know, or, or, but everybody would say, no, you're white. Mm-hmm. Or on the flip, I mean, I didn't, and that was, you know, uh, living in, in American Samoa. Um, but it was also seen as a negative, like, you know, uh, Marcy said earlier, you're half. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you're just half a person. You're not a full person. It always comes That's with the word just. You're just only, you're just you're half. only half. <laughs> right, right. So, it, and, um, but there's a lot of history and a lot of stuff that I had no idea. So all I had was my perspective growing up, living in my home, going to school, the kids around me, church, just, you know, that's all I know. But then when I, when I, you know, went overseas and lived in Thailand and then started to watch movies, like um, there's a movie called Australia. Um, and in the movie, they said uh, half cast. So that's what we grew up with. What I, I grew up with was I was half cast. So I was, but in the, in the, in Australia, that movie, it was like a, it was a, like the N word. It was like, you know, it was a derogatory term. Like you're, you're just, you're half cast. You're, um, you're not fully anything. And so you're just like a nobody. So then, but I, you know, we transliterated it in Samoan. It's called Afakasi. And, um, you know, it's, it was negative. It was a negative connotation. Now flip it. I came to Thailand and here in Thailand, when you're, you're, um, you're, you're Lukun or you're half, you're half white, they would say, um, 
they like they they're the celebrities are Lukun here or they're the celebrities are the the multiracial so they're like oh wow you're so lucky and I just I couldn't handle it because I was like no this is bad this is bad you know like because it just the different contexts treated us treated me differently and uh like uh coming here it was like a first time really saying oh yeah I am like both sides are good and then moving to the states um realize I'm not white even though I grew up everyone told me I was white and it was negative and then when I was with white people they're like oh no you're not white and it's like oh <laughs> but like coming to Thailand they're like oh man I wish I was you you're so lucky you have so many opportunities you could be a, a, a tv star a singer or something I'm like man just you just can't change people's assumptions or like that's mm. just what it is and then you just have to go okay you just have to adjust because we're my you know not not we're minority I guess amongst my own minorities wow there's so many points there that we could spend a whole podcast on that all three of you hit on just so clearly shared the the conflict the internal conflict and pain of like we'll talk about code switching we'll talk about fetishization of of uh being multiracial and biracial and and it's just I'm so glad you, Ben. You, you mentioned like identity. You, yeah, depending was, uh, on the the country, the experience, your identity has to shift, which is kind of code shifting. But it's also like, oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so bad. You're so that's so hard. Yeah, I I can relate to that, and I have a little bit of a story because I grew up in an upper middle class white community in Minnesota, where no one had a category for me. I think oftentimes because of the way I looked, people just assumed that I was Latina or from Mexico maybe. So I was on a regular basis having to say where I'm from. Where are you from? Like, well, I was born in Minnesota. Okay, but where are you like from, from? Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean like, why is my skin brown? Okay, let me let me break it down for you. My mom was born in the Philippines. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. So then there's, I can see in their eyes that they understand. So I'm always having to explain my Filipino side in the context of Minnesota. As an adult, I moved and lived in the Philippines. And I thought, wow, I'm finally going to belong. I look more Filipino than I do white. And this, I will, I will have a sense of belonging here. And right away, I realized now here, everybody wants to know why I am the way I am. And instead of having to explain my brown side, I have to explain my white side. And so in, in both contexts, I'm having to bring the other side to explain my other side in order to be accepted into that side. And, and it wasn't until that happened at the age of 25 that I realized I have been doing this my whole life where monoracial people are not having to explain who they are and why they look the way they look. Yeah, it's so funny, like you brought that up, but it's like, we've been having an introduction conversation with everyone, like the pre-conversation before an actual conversation. Yes. Like, like, what are you? What are you is a main repetitive question that you don't see a lot of, I think, racial black, people already assume are like not but when you're not looking that exactly you're like what are you 
yeah, those kind of questions. What are you? What, what did you say, Marcy? Your question was I forgot. Why are you brown? Why I are you that one? Why are you brown? Uh, what are you? Where are you really, are you from? really from? Where are you from? From? <laughs> yeah. From from. Oh yeah, that that question. I was gonna say that question is the number one question, and they ask it before they ask who you are, what your name is, what you like. You can't even get to that part. So mm. your whole life, you grow up feeling like nobody actually really wants to get to know you because they're so like trying to figure out like like what you are and mm. like they can't accept your answer especially like I don't know I'm from the Midwest like yeah but where are you really from like I was born and raised in Nebraska my entire life I know nothing else like what do you mean what I'm from do you want to know what my nationality is do you want to know what my make my you know my why I'm you know and then you get people who are straight up this like why are you brown why are you tan like you can't be from here well I am like mm. I don't know what else to say but you like you literally have to break that down for like 20 minutes sometimes and with every person you come in contact with and you don't even get to they don't even feel it feels as if they don't ever care about who you are like I get people ask me that before they ask my name yeah and then you really get used to the responses they do they have for you and then you start deciding what do I want to say today because I'll get this response or I get this response so I actually started stop saying I'm from Samoa to everybody because it's just a small island and the, 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 the reaction is basically, oh, I watched Moana or, uh, oh, uh, uh, The Rock. I mean, at least there's something there. But when I was younger, man, when, there was no rock. There was no Moana. Moana. And it was just like, you know, so uh, I just started, you know, basically the, the, the question is like, oh, uh, so I say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm half. And he's like, oh, half what? Say so half my mom, half my dad. Mm. And, and that's my joke. And then so. they just stop. They just stop talking. Because I'm just like, yeah, I'm just I'm over this conversation because this is just you're always going to do it. So I'd rather just defuse it and stop talking about my background because just I don't I don't want to educate you is my problem. Yeah, I feel like I'm a walking, talking educator of like, but you're not inter like, I'm, you know, that's kind of a it's, it's almost like the question is, is this subconscious way and maybe not even I'm unconscious, but to like you're either with me or you're other. It's like this dividing line. And so your bodies, your nervous systems, as kids even pick up on that, people are trying to categorize me. And I'm, if I don't say what they want me to be or what they are, which is primarily white in America, the majority, then I am going to be othered. That is such a heavy weight for even well, like, like, like even I think just like the lack of and there's I don't know if it's called it, a lack of intelligence, but uh, someone has never taught them how to meet someone from another place with backgrounds. So like I would I actually started teaching people like so you should you should probably say you know uh, where were you born right where were you born and raised are you from around here is a good start like maybe just saying are you from around here you know that's a positive. So yeah, no, yeah, I was born and raised right down the road and say, like, oh, uh, good. It's like, uh, where is um, your parents from? Are they from around here too? So you're just like, it's a polite, like, but it's like a lot of skill. I mean, just it's, a, you know, to expect people to, to pick that up is, I don't know, maybe a, too much. I, I would label it like in America, and I'm just going to talk from my experience in America, anything different is negative. 
we don't embrace differences at, from a curious, positive perspective. And so when it comes to our identity, we're just a little too different, a little too off. Our experiences are a little bit other than everybody else's. Um, but nobody can put their finger on it. But that little bit different is always negative. It's never presented in a positive way. So it feels like we spend our entire life, or I feel like proving myself and my worth and there's benefits and it's positive. And why is everything coming at me always from a negative? But I, I understand as an adult now that negative comes from differences. We're just different. Our view is a little bit different. We can't fully relate. And so we're just different. And somehow that different is always presented negatively. As you guys are talking, you're, you're touching on this again, Keisha, going back to what Ben was saying, of like educating how to just engage. It's like, you guys all said like the question, what are you? Like when I hear that, that's like such a dehumanizing question. Mm-hmm. It's, it's confusion, it's dehumanizing. Like, so what are you? Like I'm human, that's what I am. But then what you're, I hear you saying like, Try to humanize me. Ask humanizing questions like, are you from around here? Like, the fact you want to know about me is not a problem. It's the fact that you're, when you engage with me, you're not engaging with me as a, a fellow human. You're engaging with me as a lesser. That experience. It kind, of, it kind of feels like you're in Disneyland and you're one of the people. Yeah. And they're just like, hey, where, what are you? Oh, and you're just poking at them. Yeah. You're having a great time. And it's yep. a positive experience for them, but you're here to serve. You're here to entertain oh. them, you know? Yep. That's, that's exactly what I hear you guys ex- explaining. And experience after experience, I can't, as you're just describing, I just hear that experience has got to be so heavy of, like Ben was saying, like, I just got done with it. And just, I made a joke out of it. I'm going to deflect because I'm stop. I'm going to stop being poked. Like, I'm not... I'm not tickle me Elmo and see what see what I what kind of response do I get out of this one? And it's like, no. And I think that's such a important message for the monoracial people listening of educating us of, I mean, I think that's why it's so important for this episode is to educate where is the dehumanizing, where is the objectifying? Um, even I think what you're just talking about, Ben, is the fetishization of like, oh, you're so cool. Oh, you're so neat. You're from Disneyland. Oh, but it's like, oh, you're Samoan. I've never met somebody from Samoa. No, I'm not here for your education, for your entertainment. I'm not here for your education. I'm, I want to be engaged with as a human being, just like everybody else. Or put Uh in your promotional materials and pictures and billboards and pamphlets without my consent, because Mm -hmm. I tick the box of miscellaneous slash other colored person at the table or on um, you know I've, I've I cannot tell you how many times people have said oh I saw your picture in the camp brochure that came to my house oh really oh Marcy did you know that you were on the marathon running <laughs> like oh yep that that they would they would put me in that because I add color to your poster but no yeah. one asked or and it's I think it's also it's just I think the way it's done sometimes in America, I, th- I think is because it's like the, you're, there's an ignorance in how to actually value somebody. And so basically there's an ignorance means that they don't have the words 
they can't even say like appreciate Marcy uh, for her looks. They're just going to plug her in and then say nothing. Mm-hmm. And then Marcy says, wait, wait, you know, like, and so like, it's almost like because there's nothing said, plus the negativity around differences, plus there's no, and zero curiosity at all. So I think what one thing is, one thing for me is like, if you're not curious, then it's not an, a positive conversation. And so curiosity produces positive affirmations towards the other person. And you, people know what curious feels like and they know what it's like. What is that? Oh, wow. Where, where do you live? Oh, your mom's from there. Oh, that's amazing. There's like a tone. There's a, there's a, there's a desire to learn. Body language and is even different. Yeah, everything's different. Do you, do you guys feel like as biracial, multiracial people that there's another level of that fetishization that's a really hard word to say it is fetishes we'll say fetishism let's just say fetish um, like just leave it there i mean <laughs> i i heard that growing up in an all-white community oh my goodness biracial babies are the cutest oh my gosh let's get them little jordans and just like that was so strong and we weren't even around we had very little diversity but that still came through culturally so i'm just wondering like with conversations that you've talked to with of other multiracial people versus monoracial even like versus a a fully black person or a fully asian person do you feel like there is that higher level of that objectification So I would say um, probably depends on context and also what you're mixed with, right? So I'm half black, half white and grew up in America. And when, you know, I was born in the eighties, early eighties. And yeah, I got that token all the time. Oh, you're so beautiful. Like you have the perfect skin color. Your hair is perfect. Like I got these like comments all the time. And so I do tell people, I think I had a lot of inroads that some people didn't have because of my looks and my looks were like kind of um, looked up to in some way, shape or form. Right. So I do feel that there were probably things that I uh, engaged in and had opportunity to because of my looks. And it was a positive thing. Like my looks were positive in the time I was born and grown up in. And I talked to my husband when I met him who grew up in another country as a biracial, you know, biracial and being biracial was so negative. Like the terms they used was not beautiful and pretty. And so like we were coming from two different cultures, even though we were mixed with completely different experiences. Now I would, I would say where I get the inroad in, there is also this negative because the inroad as a mixed person, I always say only goes so far. It gets you to the table, but you actually don't have a voice at the table. And so it's like, I, I feel like, like, for instance, I do pageants. Um, I did Miss America and I, I, I do these pageants and bodybuilding shows. And I feel like I can in, in an all white environment, I'm the only person of color I mixed. I do well because I bring that diversity. I idolize that fetish. Right. But I, I don't actually get to lead or be the leader or be the winner. I only go so far because why? Well, everybody around me, uh, the whole environment I'm in, I'm just a little too different. So it's that same unconscious, like in employment, in a job, you hire the somebody who you feel comfortable with, but you're doing it so on a subconscious level, you don't realize it. And I think a lot of like mixed people experience racism in those terms. It's not like a direct 
like racist against you, but it's just this, you're just a little too different and we'd rather hire somebody that's more similar to us. And I get that vibe a lot when I'm in environments because I'm the only person of color and they embrace me into their group, but then it can only go so far because once I actually start opening my mouth and talking, my opinions, my worldview, my experiences are just a little too different than them. And all of a sudden they can't relate to me and I'm, I'm out. I'm not one of them uh, once I open my mouth. So if I be quiet, I'm, I'm the token, beautiful fetish person that they want to stand there on the stage and get second place or third place or be at the round table. But I, once I open my mouth, then I'm definitely not part of the tribe. So it's just, it's just for looks. Yeah. For me, the, I've experienced both positive and negative, negative as a half Filipino growing up in Minnesota, I was put in the back when we had this choreographed dance even though I was the shortest, but, oh, you're only half. So you have to be in the back. And that's just the way it is. And even my mom was like, well, that's just the way it is. I'm like, what? That's crazy. But then when I was applying for my job as a teacher, people assumed, so I was um, a primary school teacher in a Spanish immersion school and people assumed, oh, she must be Latina. And so she's a native Spanish speaker, even though Spanish was my second language. And I, I believe I was hired easier because people assumed that I was a native Spanish speaker. And then when I was hired in the Philippines to teach and interview there, I was told by someone, don't tell them you're Filipino because they want to know your American side first before they know that you're a Filipino because at their international school, they don't want other Filipinos at their school. So it's interesting how throughout the years I've had to play one card or the other, depending on the situation, in order to maximize my racial ambiguity, you know, mm, and, and to be able to, you know, form myself into what the expectation is and, and to blend in. And it's so true with what Keisha said. I mean, with me, I, I've lived in five different countries now. And so often after I engage and meet someone, they say, oh, we thought you were from here. It, it is until I open my mouth. <laughs> and then it's say, like, wait, you don't belong here actually. But the way you look and when you're in the photos and when you stand up, you are accepted. Just don't speak. <laughs> names, names are big. So like my full name is Nikisha and my name is Nikisha Jones. I mean, it's the blackest name you can find, I think. I have never in my 40 years of life ever gotten hired online or sending in a, um, you know, filling out a paper and sending in for a job. And I know it's because of my name. If I go in person, I get hired on the spot because I look professional. I sound professional. People want to hire me. I can never get hired online or through an application. And I know it's because of my name, Ben, he uses the name Ben because his real name he will get no opportunities. People can't even say his name. Yeah, my real name is Penyamina Falafi Jones. And we're, I'm the only Jones. We're the only Jones family in Samoa. So when you open the phone book, back in the day when we had phone books, shows our age. Yeah. And my maiden <laughs> there was only name, one Jones. And my maiden name was Schultz. And people would say often, Schultz, that's a German last name. I'm like, yes, <laughs> but you know, there, even my father who has blonde hair, blue eyes, 
would go to the grocery store with me and my sister and people would say to him, oh, did you adopt them at the same time? They're so cute. Oh my gosh. And my dad would say, you know, about two years apart, you know, the, uh, and, or one time he picked me up at school and the teacher stopped him and said, you cannot take her. And, and then turned to me and said, who is this man? I said, that's my dad. Like, I, I know we don't look alike, but that's my dad. Yeah, that's the worst. Assumption. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry, Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> you see, even we laugh, right? Like those are like really painful things. But I have found as long as I smile and laugh when I tell that story, it helps other people feel comfortable. And then it helps me like as long as I act like I'm okay, then everyone in the room is okay and I don't feel stigmatized. But as soon as I show any emotion or hurt about that, that's when people are like, whoa, 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 we didn't, we didn't know. We didn't mean anything by that, you know? And, and then, so I had just found it easier to be, to embrace my uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And this is the future face of America and blah, blah, blah. But really deep down, I have struggled to feel like a sense of belonging. Yeah. yeah. You've had to adapt. I'm adapt your story, adapt your interactions, adapt your emotional engagement, mm -hmm. and in some ways, disconnect from that story. I mean, I remember when me and Keisha first got married, um, she would be so mad at me because I would never introduce myself and never tell them people where I'm from or even my family. I would never say anything. I would always make sure I just talk about them because I could control mm -hmm. the conversation and she's like, just tell them, tell them. And I was like, no, because I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to talk about myself to people who don't care. Or basically, it's, it's, it's a um, vulnerable situation for me. I don't want to be in a situation where people are going to not treat me as a human being, have to deal with their prejudice. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's, you have to almost subconsciously as a multiracial person, you're just planning through your day or your life to minimize these kinds of environments because you're not either that or you're going to go crazy because you're trying to educate everybody and teach everybody how to talk to you. And so eventually I figured it out in a, in a way that um, I said, okay, you know, I, I was a youth pastor for a church in the Midwest uh, for a year or so. And I realized that, you know, where can I be from that they will see as positive? If they look at me, they can say, they're going to say it's positive. And um, I, found, I found an identity that fit really well with the Midwest. It was a person from New, New York or mm -hmm. LA. They're like, oh, you're from, oh, man, you're from New York? Oh, you're like, you're Italian or something, right? Because you're so expressive. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said, oh man, I love you, man, love you. And I'm wow. like, oh, there you go, found one, found one. So you, you're fine, you're, it's like you're just literally trying to find some positive image in their brain that they can connect you with so they can have a positive conversation. It's so psychologically intense. Yeah, that was the question I wanted to ask was you guys have talked a lot about identity yeah. And I'm just wondering, um, 
you've already answered this in part, but if you could explore more, like what this does or has the capacity to do to someone's mental health, who is multiracial. Day in and day out. Huh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a, I think one, one thing for me, I'm thankful when I'm in a safe space like this. Mm. Cause then it's like, Oh, I can just talk about anything and there's not going to be, I'm not bracing, but it's also, I'm just not used to it. It's just I'm not, not used to it. Not, not, not used to it. Yeah. Or for instance, like Samoans, because now we have Moana and the rock out and people have these ideas or stereotypes of what a Samoan is, right? They're, they're big and they're strong and they like UFC or they like um, rugby or, you know, there's these stereotypes and same for black people. Oh, you like hip hop or you like, or you can do spoken word. Like what kind of rhythm do you have? Right. But that, that, that you can't stereotype people in those boxes, but that's what people want to have conversations with you about. And so then it's just like, you spend your whole life, like either engaging in some conversation like that, because that's the only way you can talk with somebody. Or I think as the years go by, you just like, I just want to be me. And I don't like all those things. I actually am really techie and a little bit and I like reading and, you know, I I'm quiet and I don't dance. I don't have rhythm and I don't play any music. Um, but yeah, I'm half black, right? Like, you know, if you want to get to know me, I think, you know, I'd love to, but like, I think I've spent so much of my life trying to find a topic that people can relate to that they want to label you, but it is this whole search for identity for me as a mixed person, like who am I? And that has been all part of that journey and that process of who am I? And I think now, I mean, at I'm almost 40, it's just like, okay, I don't want to have those conversations, but I do want to connect with people who want to get to know me. And I just don't want to waste my time engaging with people. So the faster I can shut down a conversation and move on, the faster I can meet people who just want to get to know me and the faster I can be true to myself and authentic to myself. I think the, the topic of mental health challenges is really important to consider in this conversation. I I myself have dealt with depression and for many years. I don't know if it's related to this. It could be, maybe. And I, yeah, I don't speak for all half Filipinos and growing up in America. I, I can only speak for myself, but in my adult years, starting to recognize the microaggressions, the situations that I've grown up with, and starting to feel and recognize the pain that I have laughed off for years. That's why I said, ha, 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 ha. That has been my go-to coping mechanism. And, and marrying my husband, an amazing man, but comes from a monoracial background and is white, has not had to deal with this. And so it layers of understanding and perspective. And now as I'm raising my own kids, who pass are, they're very much white passing. Again, don't look like me either. Um, I'm having to really unpack it and starting to kind of make my way to the table to have a conversation, but realizing monoracial people don't have to do this. Huh? Okay. How can we, how can I add to this conversation in a way that is productive, that is a bridge that brings healing? to myself and hopefully to others.
I mean, this was an issue I was thinking about for my own kids, our own kids, our two boys. And I was like, what do they say? Because it was actually, I mean, this, this issue, like, what do, who, do, who do they say they are? Is the actual question of a multiracial person raising another set of multiracial kids? Because this is, I'm like, I grew up and this is the main issue. Hmm. So this is what I thought about. It's like, what do I say? What do I say? And I figured, we, we figured out a script and they're following the script and they said, I was born and raised in Thailand. My dad is from American Samoa and my mom is from this, from, uh, um, from uh, United States, from Omaha, Nebraska. And that's, and then like, I just sit, they sit with it and they're, they're they see their multi-ethnicity as a skill set that they have an advantage, you know, in some way, shape or form. And I was like, okay, at least it's, po- it's like, it's uh, successful because it's positive, but like, if you're just born, you, you have no, uh, you have, you have no uh, control over like just being born in a family. So a lot of families are just, are born in a context, multiracial context that there is a majority, uh, one of the, one of them, one of the parents are the majority in the society. The other parent is not, right? But ours is a little different because we're like, we have two that are not. So we're completely foreigner. So it actually is a, ben- is a benefit for them because it actually steps them away mm-hmm. from this constant, you know, e- you know, choose a side kind of issue, um, which is a new revelation, like just having, uh, raising kids in another country that these two uh, races are irrelevant. For the first time ever, when Ben and I talk about raising our kids here and people ask, are you going to ever move back to America and stuff? And currently, I mean, obviously everything can change, but currently I said, no, I don't want to. For the first time ever, like my kids are being raised as multiracial children without ever having to deal with the negatives of being multiracial in the sense people don't ask them what they are like if anything because they don't speak Thai fluently like people know they're a foreigner but that's it there is no like oh you're black oh you're Samoan oh they're like what's your stance on this what's your what's your what's your you know like where are you like it's their their experience is like not political almost right like their existence is not political and I just find that so amazing that they're growing up their childhood without having that now will they have unique you know identity things they have to navigate probably from being in a third culture but they definitely don't have the same issues to navigate as ben and i did being uh biracial in mono cultures and being that foreigner like they're actually their whole environment is surrounded by multi-race multi-language and it's just normal so normal nobody asked them what they are if we were if we lived in Samoa I would spend all my time teaching them all the Samoan ways so they wouldn't get any ticks among society Hmm. that they could just blend right because if they show any kind of differences like even tonation any any hand gestures that look different they're like oh like you know then they're they're caught in a sense. And then even in the States, like I would just, it would just be the same way. Like you just want your kids to be successful. So obviously you, your, their success is they don't have to deal with the least amount of friction in society. And whether that's good or wrong, I think it just doesn't matter because you're just like, 
this is it. This is what it is. And I'm just trying to help you through life. So as you're sharing about the awesome gift it is to create, to live in an environment where there's less friction for your multiracial boys um, and how you know they'll have to navigate things as adults, wherever they end up living, it's just such a gift. And I'm thinking about so many people that don't have that advantage to, to be able to live in a place where there's less friction for their kids to develop healthy and well without this constant racial friction and tension. And so it just reminded me as you were talking about, of course, you guys as their parents want that for them. Of course you do. And it makes me think as a white mom, um, wow, what can we do to help support the families? And I'm thinking of people, you know, back stateside, what can you do to create safer environments? Like this doesn't just matter. This conversation doesn't just matter for multiracial people. This conversation matters for everyone else who impacts how multiracial people are received. That's what I'm going through my mind is over and over, I just hear a searching for safety. Like I'm going to adapt to find safety. I'm going to avoid conversations to find safety. I'm going to ignore emotion to find safety. I'm going to code switch to find safety. I'm going to just safety, safety, safety. Every human is designed to find safety, whether it's relationship, physical, psychological. When we're talking about mental health, safety is what creates mental health. Yes. When there's not safety, it creates mental illness illness or just mental struggles and and so i hear three parents who are have struggled to find safety through identity through relationship through through family through experience mm -hmm. and then ben and keisha i just hear you explaining like basically i'm trying to find safety for my kids like i didn't have it so now i'm going to make sure that my kids do have it yeah, so much, so much so that I feel like I even take drastic measures. Like I'm getting kind of choked up thinking about this, but, um, I think like as a biracial person, you can even not feel safe in a loving home because nobody really can identify with you. And sometimes you feel like your stories are dismissed mm -hmm. because nobody can identify with you. So you're just silenced or people don't engage in it. And especially when you're a kid, they kind of chalk it off. Well, you don't really know, or you don't really understand. Okay. So even within your own home with loving parents, yes. you can still feel unsafe. And so like with my kids, maybe because I was born, you know, in that environment and I'm married to a biracial person and we have, you know, biracial kids, um, they were going to a really great school. Um, mostly an all white Christian, very like, um, one of the top educated schools for a year. And, um, there was just so much small things like the token colored person picture on the wall, the curriculum, the Bible curriculum that showed an Asian kid and said, you know, they worship idols. Um, you know, like little things like that, that people don't pick up on, I pick up on, and that makes a, a space not safe for differences. And even though my kids would never come home and say, oh, mom, we didn't like this. They said this and this and this. I notice all those things because those are all the things that as an adult now I can say made me feel unsafe and made me feel less than 
and maybe mm-hmm. feel not worthy of. And I do not want my kids surrounded by that. So I will not have a conversation with you. I will not educate you. I will not prove to you, but I will not keep sending my kid there. Mm-hmm. I will pull them out and put them in an environment that is more inclusive and more diverse, even if it's not perfect, because there's no perfect place. It is that important to me that I will just do that. And, and I have done that. It, I have nothing bad to say about anybody or anything, but it's those subliminal messages that are all around you that nobody talks about, that nobody thinks is important, that can mess with a kid's identity, like really can. It becomes very clear uh, when you're looking at your own children, because as a parent, confidence. And if, you, if they're confident, like in whatever they're doing, they're in a good place. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can see. And so, but if, if you feel like their confidence going down and I like, you know, I think that's the safety thing you were talking about there earlier. That's where the um, mental health comes in, like your confidence in yourself, you can, the essential thing of a successful person, you know, growing up. So you as a multiracial people, you're looking at like, okay, what, what situation are my kids going to go through and what do they need to be able to build confidence, not feel like a victim that something happened, someone said something to them or whatever, whatever. And so like, yeah, taking them out, homeschooling them, even like we put our kids in a high school and there we saw their confidence go wah down just because they're, they're so tired of being highlighted. They're not Thai or they're Thai uh, language was not proficient enough and mm-hmm. so then I said yeah I know I know my type is so good now people just think I'm half Thai and so it's so easy for me I just go out and like just join in a conversation and mm-hmm. people are like oh yeah yeah you're from Chiang Mai yeah that's great mm-hmm. oh. and but before that it was like you know they're stressed mm-hmm. they're stressed because I exist and I'm talking to them <laughs> you know it, whether it's whatever race you're I'm talking to that the fact that I exist and they're not used to it, it's stressful for them. So it's almost like it's my job subliminally growing up to make people feel at ease. Yeah. Because it's I, I, I'm responsible. It doesn't matter how old I am. It's because I, I attain knowledge and the knowledge is the power. And because, and because I have that knowledge, it's my job to make everybody feel at ease. And the fact that I exist is uh, uncomfortable for most people. Yeah, I I have a thought related that, I mean, this highlights also the differences in experiences for multiracial people. My kids don't look anything like me. They look more like their dad. They inherited more of the white traits. So even as their mom, I don't look like them. I have this multiracial experience in my body, the way that I look in my experience, and they're totally white passing. So what does that mean for safety for them? I mean, we've even been in situations multiple times where people have assumed that I am not their mom, that maybe I'm their nanny. We had a a girl that was living with us for a while. She's 10 years younger than me, um, but she's white. And we when we would travel together, um, the intern, my husband, and then my two kids at the time, I would be holding my baby son and they would look at him and then look at her and say, your kids are so cute. Assuming I was maybe the nanny. (laughs) And I was like, excuse me, these are my babies. But 
I'm thinking now in terms of, you know, what, what does it mean as a mom? How am I going to provide, explain my, my daughter who's just, uh, who's four and a half has said multiple times, when I grow up, my hair will turn black like you, mommy, right? When I grow up, will my eyes turn dark like you? In her mind, she will look like me when she grows up because I represent woman to her. So we've had many conversations, look at our skin, our skin is different, but we're one family and, and how God has made so many different types of skin and hair and even our dolls and toys that we have. I've been so intentional to have different colors and different ethnicities and races represented in our books. And um, I love that we're able to live in a diverse area of the world, but we just, diversity is just a huge value in our family and talking about it because being raised by a monoracial mom, married to a monoracial dad who are two different races. It's true what Keisha said, they don't understand me. I don't understand me. My sister and I, we understand each other more than anyone else in the world. And even preparing for this and talking through some stories and feelings of growing up, it was really healing and therapeutic to realize that there are other people out there that their story might not be exactly the same. But when we take time to listen to each other and share the good things and the bad things, I can hear things in Ben's story and Keisha's story. And I say, oh, I know what that's like. You have a white dad too. Yeah, me too. Oh, what was that? Like, did this ever happen at the grocery store for you? You know, and just say, okay, I guess I'm not so alone in this and, and having spaces for people to ask those curious questions and like, what was that like for you? And, you know, what, what can I teach my kids? So, you know, and I think it's just a learning journey and yeah, yeah I'm going mean, to stop it, laughing it, about it. I mean, <laughs> what I think next you, time someone you, assumes I'm a nanny, I'm telling the world, I'm going to say, I'm not the nanny. <laughs> I mean, and even like, you, you know, the whole laughing thing as multiracial people to, to other multiracial people, that's what we do. We laugh. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. I've never met, I've met so many different uh, multiracial people from different races coming together. And really it's the way you cope. You don't have any other safe outlet to cry. People will, you, there's no crying no. for us. The way where we, we connect, even with my own siblings, um, I went to an all-time one school. They went to an international school. My mom had the same exact uh, story as you. I look way more white. and But Samoans are like a bit darker than Filipinos. But they thought, you know, uh, she was the nanny. And I think it really traumatized her because she's a monoculture. She was born, raised Samoa. She did not know what to do. And she did not understand what I was going through or my sister, or my brother. But because I was the oldest, she just went straight. You're a Samoan. We're not going to even talk about your white because this is like really difficult. And so I just did that. You know, as a parent, you're like, you're talking about the dynamics. It's like, yeah, you it's very difficult to um, understand, but the, the laughing part, I've come to like, just accept it. That's my sister and my brother's coping mechanism too. We're just like, yeah, I remember, remember that time. Oh yeah. Because we have the, there is no place for me and my brother and my sister to cry with each other. There is not even a space. I've never even, this is very, this is very beautiful to have this conversation because 
this needs to be cried about. Yes. Yes. Because it's utter aloneness, even with your own family members. And the only ones that you could share with is your siblings or other people. But yeah. This is the longest I've talked about this topic in my whole life, uninterrupted. This is the first time. And as I was preparing stories, I just felt this like grief in my body for the last couple of days. I was like, I just feel off and I don't know why. So I think there, there's something there that needs to be explored. And Luke, I might be calling you up as my counselor, to, you know, or something. That, Call away. But, um, that it's, it's real. It, it's real. I observed for myself that growing up, I feel the most connected to multiracial people just in general even, even cultures and languages I don't understand because I subconsciously understand that they understand what it's like without saying anything. And I honestly, um, my mom and dad have this running joke. Their first argument in their marriage was when I was a baby and I was in a car seat sitting between the two of them. And my dad nonchalantly looks over to my mom and he's so happy. They've got their you know, new baby. I'm the first, I'm the oldest. And he looks over my mom and says, she's so beautiful. And one day she'll marry this really nice white guy. And then my mom just like snapped at him and was like, she's not marrying a white guy. She's marrying a black guy. Why is she going to marry a white guy? And my mom and dad go on and on say that without realizing it, they held these biases and judgments, even though they were married to two people and they loved each other when they had me, they, this was like their biggest argument. And I know for myself growing up, I always was attracted and drawn to biracial people and I felt the most comfortable and at home with them. And it's one of the beautiful things I feel like about my marriage is marrying somebody who is multiracial and who even comes from another country, which his experience as a multiracial in another country is even more eye-opening for me. But it, it, I feel safe in my home because without saying anything, I don't have to explain anything to him. He doesn't have to explain anything to me. Our children do look like both of us because, you know, we're both, we're all mixed. Um, We all have dark eyes and dark hair and they don't have the complexes that neither my husband or I grew up with. And I do feel so blessed and so safe. And we actually talk about these things daily, but it's, it's from this place of like, we get it. We know it not from like, we are educating each other or trying to get the other person to see our view. It's more of this camaraderie relatability that we have at a deeper surface level that I don't think many uh, multiracial people get in their life. And we just feel blessed that that is a piece in our marriage. I celebrate it with you. I love it. So good. I'm wondering, we, we mentioned microaggressions, someone did, but I'm wondering if you guys feel comfortable sharing more with our audience, what it looks like to experience racism and prejudice in little ways throughout your weeks that white people generally wouldn't detect they wouldn't see and they wouldn't understand is actually a racist act even if it's not a burning cross and a racial slur i think that could be really helpful you've shared a couple examples like when you are introduced to people like what are you where are you from where are you from from where are you really really from from? yeah i mean uh yeah i mean it's so funny because i think 
I've I'm I'm more of an introvert, but I've taken on extrovert traits because I need to con I need to control the conversation. So anybody I meet, especially I'm in like more kind of like sales, I guess, because you're always trying to meet new people and trying to get them in or whatever. Um, or even like you're talking to students or parents or something. You're but like you're just like, so hi, how are you? You just you just straight up talk about them because you're you're you know, you just control the conversation. Um, uh, when I was the first time I worked in the States, um, uh, in the office, you know, there were, I was the only ethnic person. There was another guy who was black, uh, but he was in a different place, a different department. And they would come in with caps. Um, they were blonde, blue eyed Midwest kids and caps, t-shirt, you know, and I was like, oh, cool. This is so I just, you know, as a as a as a multiracial person, you're you are very high. You you start you observe the of surroundings quickly, and you know you know what is the majority, and then you start adapting subconsciously. And I so so I just started wearing what they were wearing, and then I got you know uh, taken aside. Say hey, yeah, to by the my manager is like, hey, that's uh, not appropriate what you're wearing. And I just like, okay, I think someone who is not familiar with this would be upset. And I even told Keisha, I said, she's, she was very angry about this. And I was like, Keisha, you're acting like a white person. So she's like, what, what do you mean? I was like, only white people like get enraged about this because we multiracial or ethnic people, we just, just say, yeah, that's just what it is. So these are the skills you need to have to get around it, not like fight for your rights. You know, we're not Martin Luther King. All of us are not, you know, we're, we're normal people just saying, okay, okay, so don't, don't wear the, okay. Um, so then I come in and I, I'm the only one wearing polo shirts. Everybody else is wearing shirts, but like, and I'm a man, right? So I, I'm sure it's worse for women in, because of my status. So like I could get away with a lot more things. I didn't even notice that with Keisha. And I just said, yeah, if you were a guy, they wouldn't say that. So it's almost like there's, there's even levels and you just start being more and more aware of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I get really stressed out with my kids going back to the States and just always being aware of their environment. And then even going to Samoa, even um, just, man, you just, you're just always just sucking in all of the, what, where am I? What do I need to do? How do I need to adjust? You look sloppy or not put together, but only an mm -hmm. ethnic person looks like that. A white person doesn't. The white mm -hmm. person just looks like, oh, they're cool. And if you, mm -hmm. if you say anything back, you're the problem, right? So I've already, you know, just so much experience. Mm -hmm. You have so much experience around this. You're just like, hey, if any other biracial comes along me, I'm like, yo, bro, just, just, just chill. Just, mm -hmm. just say, yes, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And yeah. then now this is what you got to do. You know, you need, almost need like multiracial coaches for each environment because you're, you know, a revolution is, I think, a more, I don't know, maybe a lofty idea, but not practical. Like what, how we survive and how we are successful. Like when I see ethnic people becoming very successful, my question is like, how did, how did you do it, you know, in that environment? 
then you start forming this community that's like, yeah, with acknowledging our reality, who, how did you do that? You know, kind of the thing. Yeah. That reminds well, me say- of, sorry, real quick, I'll say the assimilation that is necessary for survival and the hypervigilance that you carry uh, for yourself, for your children, constantly scanning the environment. We talked about that last episode, right? Yeah. Constantly evaluating for safety. How do we return to safety? Are we safe? Is everyone okay? Are people being perceived right? It just sounds utterly taxing and exhausting. My microaggressions that I've experienced a lot other than being considered the nanny is being told my English is really good. That that's happened a lot. Or it, on the flip side, being expected to speak at a certain level of proficiency in a second language because of the color of my skin. So for instance, when I lived in Colombia, speaking in Spanish, I, I had to speak so perfectly and get all of the cultural nuances in there, or people would be very offended by me. One example is before you ask a question, for instance, you have to say, hi, how are you? Good afternoon. How's your family? Oh, by the way, do you know where the restroom is? There's all of these little things. Because if I, as an American, just go up and say, excuse me, where's the restroom? Which is what we would do in the U.S. Cut to the chase, get to the point. Don't waste my time with all of these, you know. But I had people say, whoa, 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 excuse me, young lady, you need to greet me first. Then when my white friend comes up and says, excuse me, where's the bathroom? It's right away. Oh, you're a white person. You're a foreigner. This is your second language. So here's a pass on you not meeting my cultural competency requirements. And so I've experienced that in Colombia. I've experienced that living in the Philippines, um, even with my family. I, I don't know. And, and then that's when I want to be like, but I'm only half. How come I don't get to play that card when it hurt, when it helps me? But I, you know, I only use, I can only use that when like you play that card when it hurts me. You're only half. So you need to go in the back. Uh, growing up, you know, the, <laughs> this was a healing experience for me, but I brought one time, didn't know that this was weird rice and a fried fish to school to eat in Minnesota, right? And everyone is like, what is that smell? What are you eating? My mom is the one that cooked for us. So most of our food was Filipino food. It was my favorite thing. I opened up my lunch. Yes, fried fish today. This is great. Or the one time I brought a whole crab to eat at school. And everyone is like, what? That's weird. That's super weird, Marcy. So the whole, that's super weird. But then as an adult, I go to the Philippines and I see all the kids eating rice and fish for their lunches that their mom packed for them. And I thought, oh, there are kids in the world that get to eat fish that don't get made fun of. That's amazing. That's a healing moment for me. Meanwhile, the white kids are like eating their goldfish crackers, you know, the cheese flavored Mm -hmm. goldfish crackers. And no one says that's weird. Your fish, they're fish, but they taste like cheese. So how come no one makes fun of them when my fish actually tastes like fish and looks like fish, you know? So it's like this, like the food and the culture and these expectations of what you're supposed to do and know how to adapt and adjust. 
yeah, so you can blend in. I was going to say too, as a biracial person, the microaggressions come from both sides, not just one side. So I have like so much memories of the African-American community's microaggressions against me. So I'm talking white or I'm acting too white or your hair is nice. So you think you're all this or like there, there's just blatant comments like that towards me that I have to protect myself against or like, you know, uh, ready myself if I'm in an all black community or environment or like, so I grew up in an all black neighborhood. My parents actually had a 501c3 nonprofit that worked with African-American poor gangs, like incarcerated people. My white dad started it in the inner city. Um, so I grew up in this inner city, predominantly all African-American, but very poor community, very violent community. But my dad, who was a chemical engineer before that, had us kids go to private all white schools and churches outside the community. So I grew up in this like two real worlds, like black community that was ghetto and poor and white community that was educated and wealthy. And I was having to navigate the two worlds and I was getting micro aggressions from the poor black community who said I'm acting white and rich and in, you know, and then the white community who was scared to even hang out with me because I, my address was on a certain street, right? Like I grew up with people who would say to my face, you know, I, I don't want my kids to play with you, or, you know, we're not going to come to your house because you live on such and such street. Um, and then for direct like um, experiences with racism, I'm, I'm not even 40 yet, but when I was 12 years old, I got denied from a school in the Midwest just for the fact that we were a, a family of color. And the only reason I can tell you for sure that it was racism is because my dad's family all lives there. They're white. Their kids all went to this school and um, we wanted to opt into the school in another district so we could go to school with our cousins. And when we applied and sent in our application, they held an emergency board meeting and all of my uncles and aunts were part of this school and went to the board meeting and they were appalled at the topic of conversation at hand was we're not letting this black family come to our school and ruin our children right and this is this is not that long ago and I, I'm not that old and um they my uncles and aunts proceeded to call my parents because they just couldn't believe that this existed and my parents had the opportunity or the choice to be on the news about it and actually fight about this in court and they opted not to do that because they didn't want our family to be you know, plastered on the news and they wanted us kids to have somewhat of a normal childhood. And they also opted for not to fight it and to send us to that school because they didn't want us in a hostile environment, <laughs> you know, but I mean, that, that stuff, that blatant stuff still even happens like now. I hear two things coming up. Marcy, you, as you were talking, you were talking about food injury. We brought that up in our first uh, episode with Sarah and Heather and those microaggressions of, oh, that food's strange. Oh, that food smells smells weird. Keisha or Ben, have you guys had similar experiences? Uh, food injury, yeah. But from my uh, the Samoan side, it's a they they it's a, one of the strong. They I don't know where I read this, but like Korea and Samoa are um, there's no dialects in our language. So they like, they have this ranking of like 
how monoculture are you right so like how and so there's a there's a saying like the, the Samoan way and so like food is huge if you don't eat the Samoan food there's like microaggressions all around yeah I mean I was called a uh, a palangi toy mean which means uh, a toy white person which means you're not a real white person but you look like one and then you know just eating like even like I tell my kids I I, I even fight it myself like hey here's some salmon food they're like oh that is disgusting I'm like you gotta eat it because there's danger coming if you don't eat it somehow because I'm like this is real this is real like oh yeah, I like I would just eat Samoan food and I love Samoan food, but, you know, there is something there. Um, I also say a microaggression for that I've witnessed with my husband, you know, who's come from Samoa, people have this idea Samoans are big, which means big people eat a lot. So when we go to somebody's house or they invite us, they always throw these sly little comments in that says, well, we need to buy the whole store because Ben's coming to our house or like, oh, we better make sure sure we have enough food because Ben's coming like li like literally and they're joking about it and they're laughing about it and it really hurts him but I think he's hurt it so much he doesn't say anything but it was my first experience like hearing about that like food and how people connect Samoans with big eaters and big appetites and people we get that all the time when people invite us over like they make comments like that yeah that's true yeah and then you just you know the stereotypical like someone is just a goof off or something i don't know like before the rock at least the rock helped us a lot because he's like you know it's like there's some kind of person in most people's minds that are like oh yeah a, a someone can look this way but yeah like i'm we're stupid i'm stupid or like you know you gotta fight extra hard to get that number one spot it's all not said but it's like you know that that's a real good one the did I make enough food? Can or, I just, or, uh, everyone's obese, you know, kind of a thing. Well, I, I find this with Ben as well, because it's a, diff, a little bit different experience in mine, but someone's his first language, not English. And there is this derogatory, like you're not as smart. And I actually experienced it moving to Thailand because I can't speak the language fluently and people treated me like I was less than and less educated because I could not communicate in their language. And I see this happening to Ben when we're in America, when we're here in Thailand and just everywhere because his first language is not English. And when people hear him speaking another language, it's all of a sudden they view him, they communicate to him as a like lesser intelligent. And it's like, they don't hold his views as high because he's foreigner and, or English isn't his first language. When I first met him, he was not around English speakers very much. And there was a lot of words. He'd be like, oh, I don't know that word. Like, what am I trying to say? What's that word? And, or he would use a word in not like the correct way it's supposed to be. And I feel like anytime that happened, people would just, um, negate what he had to say as if he didn't know what he was talking about or it's not important and that that really affected me and then the other thing that really affected me was like cultures right so uh, time like in america time being on time is really important but in other cultures like samoa or um or asia it's the event is important and the people are important it's not so much time and so when ben moved to america and got his first job in the states even though people knew he wasn't america American, 
they were so hard on him and they, they treated him so negatively. Like he's lazy. He doesn't show up on time. This isn't important to him. He doesn't. And I, I just kept being like, he's a grown adult who has so much work experience, so much experience, but time is not on his mind because he never has lived ever in his entire life where you have to be on time somewhere. It's all about the event. He always shows up for the event and he'll stay after and he'll get everything accomplished and done. But there was no consideration or even like value or understanding that there's nothing like characterly flawed about my husband. He's just operating on a completely different system. But to an American, that was like so bad and so negative. And then they treated him so bad and so negative. And I just as a wife watching all that from afar, I feel like I saw so much more microaggressions and so much more racism watching my husband from another country come into America and try to survive and operate. And man, it gave me so much compassion to people coming over and then to have a little bit of that experience as a Westerner living in a foreign country where people started treating me like I don't have education and a degree and I haven't had my, you know, life experiences. These are all microaggressions that we just shrug and push away if you're dealing with multicultures, multi-languages, multi-ethnicities and races. Keisha's approach to it was always to bring it up. My approach was not that at all. Opposite like never bring it up never because it just brings more attention to yourself so even like even Keisha's talking about oh Ben's time oriented I feel unsafe because basically it's showing a vulnerability someone can use against me now so I'm like yeah. dang it now they know all right shoot I gotta figure something yeah, else I've been now. outed oh now you oh, know now, now they know that I struggle with with time yeah, right. oh my goodness and I better show them I have a I have a watch that has an alarm on it but I got to prove myself. So the, now I need to. So the, yeah. Yeah. So they'll stop bringing it up. So, but Keisha, but Keisha didn't, you know, her background, her dad was very good with like telling them that they're positive, give positive affirmation to them. All of the kids are like, you're a gift. You, you guys are like mixed. So that means you can adapt to a lot of, like she, he always verbalized that as a positive and her self-esteem as a multiracial person was so high. Mine was so low. And I'm like, no, 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 you do not talk about this. You do not bring it up. You just like pretend like it never happened. Mm -hmm. Really, that's the best way forward. You're just like, oh yeah, well, you know, what, what are you talking about? Like, are you ask, you act stupid. There's one, one act, is it act stupid? Oh, it's no problem. And then you just move on to the next thing. So Marcy, what well, sounds like you were relating to the adaptation that Ben was talking about with the time seems like you had more you wanted to talk about. If not, it's fine. I think the part that I relate to is the having to prove myself yeah. one side or the other and, okay. or explain, I, I guess for me, it's more like explaining myself, like my, using whatever label I'm half Filipino. I only say half Filipino in the United States, in the Philippines. I say I'm Phil am because that's the label they use there to understand me, their category. Oh, Filipino American. So that's why you blah, 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 blah. And I think, oh, I guess I, yes, that's why I eat carrot sticks that aren't cooked all the way. So I'm having to explain, why do you eat carrot sticks in the Philippines? And my, because my neighbors are like, it's so hard. It's raw. Why would you eat it raw? You have to cook it first, but that's an American treat or American snack, healthy snack, having to explain, mm. oh, but I'm Phil M. Oh, that's why you eat carrot sticks. Meanwhile, in America, 
I'm half Filipino. Oh, that's why you eat whole fish with the eyes. <laughs> with the a funny eyes. Story. When we, we, we went back to Samoa and we've been living, I mean, the, my kids were about six and five. I don't know. They were young. No, they were like th- uh, three and two. And so we went to my, my Samoan church and we're known as we're like, you know, we live in Asia or most people think Korea. They're just like, oh, you live in Thailand? Korea. Oh, yeah. Korea. Korea. I'm like, I don't. I, okay, fine. But one lady, she's like, she's like, oh, so where do you live? It's like, oh, we live in Thailand. And I was like, and they looked at my kids and they looked at my me and they're like, oh, that's why your eyes are going like this more. And Keisha's like, what? I'm like, and I just said, go. And we just we went and we we went and unpacked that. I'm like, it's a journey of accommodation of complete ignorance it's the journey is accommodating people's ignorance it's like this is how people think like they think she thinks that because we live in a location in the world our eyes and our facial features will change that's what she thinks and there might be a lot not there might be we should expect it like almost like stop expecting the best but just like preparing for the worst is like less painful. <laughs> just thinking about the choices that a person, a multiracial or a person of color has in a white context. It seems like the options are very limited for how they choose to engage this. And I just appreciate your candidness, Ben, of like, just so pragmatic about it. Like you have to just take the hits, play, you know, either pretend like you didn't catch their microaggression or just let it go and don't confront them. And I just think I would say this is probably how the majority of people respond. And then there's small percentage, it seems, of people who say, I'm not doing that. And they become the activists and they write books and they do podcasts and they educate, educate and educate. And the, the sacrifice that that is on their life and their well-being and their mental health is got to be enormous, like beyond what my brain can comprehend. And I just, it makes me think like both people are right. They, they both have whatever option they want. And to just, I don't know, I feel like just to honor the people that, that have chosen the road of like bringing this out. And I just feel the weight of it because I hear the weight for your own stories for just surviving in a white world. And not having to correct everything, just having to take it, having to deal with it, having to absorb it. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, I'm so thankful for the conversations like this and the the people of color in our lives who have been willing to like be vulnerable enough with us knowing that we we were going to possibly be hurtful and we have been. (laughs) And also the people that like spend their, their lives basically 
being like a martyr almost. Maybe that's not the right word, but like being on that public platform where they are sharing so intimately these things with their with their stories and with advocating for against white supremacy. I don't know. I'm just I'm feeling really thankful for for everyone's part and just honoring like all the different parts that people choose and the different callings maybe that people have. I I think it is so important to recognize it needs to be a group effort from people on all different sides. And even me, like I had huge hesitancy to come on and talk about this because I, I can only speak from Marcy's experience from growing up in Minnesota, in my family, in my, I, I, I feel so uncomfortable speaking. And I think it's because white supremacy will say, you need to speak on behalf of others, but also being from a collectivist society culture, like in the Philippines, where the loudest voice is supposed to speak on behalf of others to advocate for them, I think. But if I go on the podcast, I don't want to be the loudest voice. What if I misspeak or speak wrong or what I say doesn't express how another person really feels or what if I what if I negate someone else's experience with my experience you know all of these feelings that I have my whole life had to wonder if I say it like this in this context is it going to be okay for this person in acceptance it's hard enough for me to accept myself let alone stand up and say everyone needs to accept me and people that are like me but there's no one like me so I don't really know who I'm fighting for or how to speak for it so there's just there's just a lot in it mm-hmm. and thank you for even giving me a chance to kind of share my experience because five years from now I might tell totally different stories mm-hmm. or realize what I'm saying now doesn't really relate any you know what I mean like there's just a lot of room for journeying in it. say it's that's why it's a journey mm-hmm. it's like your experience today doesn't nullify your experience in five years and your experience in five years doesn't nullify your experience today. Uh, This is where you're at today. And this is what you're sharing today. And I think that's brings so much value to the conversation. Um, So I am freedom. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Say, I really relate to what Marcy was saying and the journey and how things can shift and change and being that, multiracial and what, where do you fit? I mean, that is like our journey. And I would even say like, I mean, I laugh about it now, but it's because I've gone through the process, but I can tell you that the majority of my entire life until probably seven or eight years ago, I spoke from a view of a white person because that is the voice I heard my entire childhood, my white dad's voice. And I took on that identity and I spoke from a person of privilege, but yet my experiences said I was a person of color. And I had this internal conflict that I could not name, that I could not point a finger at. And here I was one of those activists, like fighting for our rights, but I was fighting from a worldview that I'm a white person with privilege that, cause I get to be at the table. I'm always at the table. Like, and so I saw myself like that, even though in the mirror, I'm Brown and in the mirror, I'm proud to be biracial, but my worldview came from my dad, who is a privileged white man, 
very well educated and wealthy, honestly. Okay. So it wasn't until seven years ago, I had this aha moment that actually I am a person of color. And when people see me, they respond to me as a person of color and all my experiences are valid. They are not brushed to the side. I didn't make them up. I didn't create stories in my head. They weren't a one and done situation. It was my life. And once I came to that aha revelation, I stopped fighting. I have spent my entire life being that activist fighting. And you know what everybody labels me as? They roll their eyes and it's like, oh no, Keisha's on her soapbox talking about something else. I'm always the one rocking the boat, which means it's a negative thing. And I'm always rebellious and I got issues and I got bitterness issues and I got hate and I don't got love. And I'm always rocking the boat because I'm always bringing these things up and I should just focus on the positive and just focus on the good things. And I, I once I got that aha moment, it, kind of like gave me um, the permission to not have to prove anything and kind of just live my life like I saw my husband do. We experienced things, but to make the best life I could for myself and my kids, I wanted to put my focus and my energy in building the life I wanted versus spending so much energy trying to convince people that these things weren't right and we need to fight for it. And so, yeah, there are people who are called to different things, even at different seasons of their life and to give the grace and the space for all of that, because you do have to put so much energy into something if you're fighting for it or you're fighting against it if you take a stand on it and honestly it was exhausting but I felt like I had to do that just because the essence of who I was created that dynamic like it's like just because of who I was I rocked the boat like it felt like an identity thing that just me created that and it wasn't until I had that aha moment that actually I probably relate a lot more to people of color than white America, um, that I could actually give myself permission to get off that soapbox and just create the life that I wanted, like focus on the things I wanted and where I wanted to build. As you were talking, uh, something came to my mind of like another microaggression. Now, we don't need to go into it because we don't really have time, but I just want to get affirmation from you guys if this is accurate. Keisha, you were saying I have this experience and it wasn't just a one and done. It wasn't just this. It wasn't one of the things that was uh, maybe another microaggression is, is the idea that just because that's your experience, that's not reality. Like that's just your experience or you're reading into things. And as I am learning more even about brain science, neuroscience and, and trauma and everything, there's a thing called neuroreception, neuroception. And that's where like your nervous system communicate with your brain is interpreting how you feel and also your environment. So it's that interoception and extraception and the combination is the neuroception. And you don't always have a language or a pinpoint of like this happened, but your body experiences it. Like this was not safe. They didn't interact. They didn't trust me. They didn't like me. They didn't. And something that white people don't understand is that experience of being somebody, of being a person of color saying, ooh, that was, there was something off about that. And a white person can say, no, you just read into it. Once you look into science and, and neuroscience, it's like, no, that was neuroception. You don't have a language, you can't pinpoint it. And there's plausible deniability. Your nervous system experienced danger. Would you say that would be an accurate assessment of another microaggression for you get for people of color 
Oh, definitely. And also those microaggressions, even as an adult at a 40 year old, I mean, I don't have words for them, but the more articles I read that people print and they put words to the feelings we feel, right? So I still don't have all the words. I feel like even as a 40 year old, I am learning how to communicate my experiences and what they actually were because I can't pinpoint these things, but when somebody says something and they give their example, I'm like, oh yeah, I had that same example. Wow. I I think hearing, I heard this a few years ago and it helped so much. So I'll just share it quick and you can affirm if this is your experience too. I heard the word um, patronizing and paternalistic in, in regard to um, race race relations, I guess. Um, and, and then I kept seeing it everywhere, like white people telling people of color their experience and how they should feel about their experience. And I just kept seeing it and seeing it and seeing it. And the plausible deniability wrapped up into that. It was just like, oh my goodness, there is such a power differential here that white person A thinks that they can tell person of color B their own reality. And when we stepped back and like looked at how mind boggling that is that you think you could do that to someone and how, yeah, how it's like the basis of this whole conversation. If you're talking to a hostile white person, yeah, that shocked us. So would you say like the paternalism is a real reality? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I would say I actually, for a season, I was very bitter and um, whenever I, I would flip it on them and I would say, oh, you only speak one language? Oh, have you ever traveled? Oh, you've never traveled anywhere. Oh, you've only lived in your own, own town. Oh, that's, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, I would just flip it. I would flip it, but it was mean, right? And, you know, that's what I did. And I just made sure basically don't mess with me. That's what I was saying. Just I'm dangerous to you. I will make you feel uncomfortable. I will make you feel small because I felt small, Yeah. but I will make you feel small now because I will just say the facts of highlighting you and what you don't have. In comp- and I will show you another world that you don't really, you're, you're a white person, but there's a billion Chinese and a billion Indians. So you're a minority on the earth. Like I would like, you know, I would do that, but it just didn't really, it wasn't such what I wanted, really what I wanted was safety. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that. Something that monoracial people don't understand is those frustrated emotions that people of color share or show, it's not because they're mean or, or whatever. It's they're, they're protective, they're hurtful. You have no idea the ex- experience that they've gone through for the last several decades that has created a protection of like, I'm not, I don't want to make you small. It's I'm protecting myself because I know you're going to just attack me. And so I'm going to without you, even knowing it. Right. We didn't have no insight to it. Exactly. And I'm going to be left picking up the pieces and being hurt. And so I'm going to shut this conversation down, this relationship down as quick as possible so that I'm going to for once think about myself rather than think about your comfortableness. I'm going to think about my my me being safe and comfortable. And in order to do that, I have to be like this. I don't want to, this is what systemic racism does, is if I'm going to be safe, I'm going to have to protect myself. 
but then realizing that that but that didn't work yeah that you didn't feel like and you had that wasn't fruit of your character it wasn't authentic to yourself it didn't fit for you and so you took the high road and I just would imagine it it gets a little bit old always going high when they go low right I mean I I went low a lot I mean even um um what Marcy said you know oh your English is so good and I would just say oh yours too where did you learn (laughs) and they were like I mean, I, I what? I'm like, yeah. How's that feel, bro? Yeah, let me so dumb. <laughs> I'm making you look dumb, and it feels good. It's revengeful. That feels good. Just a hook, but then eventually, just like, oh man, I'm I'm doing more harm to myself hmm. because I'm just adding to the thing. So it's so funny because in every situation that that happened, I felt so embarrassed for the other person that I wanted to so quickly be like, oh, actually I grew up in Minnesota. I know you can't really oh. tell because of the way that I look and I'm racially ambiguous and blah, blah, blah. And oh, I felt yeah. like really fast, I had to explain it and then say, but don't worry, it happens all the time. Don't feel embarrassed, oh, don't goodness. even, you know, and, and excuse oh. them and let them off the hook because it was so, I didn't want them to feel embarrassed because then I had yeah. to deal with their bad emotions and it's better. I'm just used to absorbing it. So let me just absorb it yeah. one more time and move on. And let's talk about the weather. You know, like, yeah. no one wants, I'm that I haven't learned to stand up or. Yeah. I mean, even it. I would just, yeah. I, I would just say like, yeah, you, oh yeah, your English is so good. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I learned it, you know, day by day, you know, when uh, I was born at a young age, you know, and every day just learning this language from my mom and dad and you know I just like I would just make it that way and it would would laugh Laugh. it would laugh but laughter is the most the beneficial education tool it is it's because they are like ha ha versus what yeah and so then they would stop doing that but they would have a positive thing it was just weird like it's a psychology and I don't know if this is helpful um, but we also, uh, trauma responses of like fight, flight, and freeze. Uh, there's a new one that's been found out that's been like identified is fawning. And when you, a person is put in a dangerous or threatening situation, they use humor to deflect and get out of the comf- the uncomfortable situation. And so not to shine a light, but like, it's funny. It's a... It's a adaptive school skill that you guys have used, but I almost I see it as like almost a trauma traumatic experience, like a trauma response of I've been so traumatized and so uncomfortable and so attacked that I'm going to get out of this com- this uncomfortable situation by making a joke out of it, and it's a it's a fawning response of deflection instead of me feeling bad or feeling stupid. Let me save you from feeling stupid and let's make a joke out of it so that we can all move on and and be happy-go-lucky and and they're educated a little bit more educated right and a little bit more educated because they don't want to look dumb right yep and it's just another uh, example of the relational social hole that you get put in as a multiracial person that you have to dig yourself out of by using trauma responses So I even think as a society as a whole, 
we can't box like multiracial people in a box and say, oh, you know, they experience these things and these things will need to be worked on or like they're, you know, forms of trauma that you can heal through or work through. Whereas a monoculture like the African-American community or the Afghan refugees, right? Like it's a whole people group that you can categorize and say, oh, they've experienced X, Y, and Z and then they can work through X, Y, and Z and we can name it, we can label it. We can see the tendencies and the patterns multiracial people are there are so many of us with so many you know unique experiences that not only can you not categorize all at once but it almost as if um it's not it's not even on the board like it's not even a topic that's worth discussing like it, it doesn't even get to be part of the table of actual things that need to be worked through or worked on or people are actually working on these things that makes so much sense it does and Another reason why I'm just reemphasizing why I'm so happy that we are able to have this conversation. This is a conversation that needs to be at the table. Uh, this is a conversation that needs to be had more frequently. Because as I'm as I'm hearing you guys' stories and experiences, there's like there's a lot here to talk about. Uh, there's a lot here to understand, to to love, to bring safety to, to learn from, to uh, understand how, how we hurt, how, whether it's intentional harm, maybe ignorant harm, but still intentional, but it is unique. It is unique to a, an experience, uh, monoracial and, but no less yeah, I mean, valid or painful or. Yeah. The, uh, like for my children as a very strong example of like the environment that is the best for them is an environment of a group of people who are familiar with meeting people different from them. So there's uh, there's a poly, there's a Pacific Islander conference that happens once a year. All the Pacific Islanders from all around Asia come together to Chiang Mai, and we have this like little uh, you know little shindig, like eating, dancing, singing. But every person is from a different island. And they're also married interracially with another other races, and they have mixed race kids. And then, but there are Samoans, and but the culture environment that they're coming, like, oh, hello, you are this person's child. Like the way people talk, it's so I don't know how, but cross cultural, high cross cultural intelligence is how I frame it. Yeah. Is that they're able? They are not able, but they've learned and they are familiar with talking to somebody that's not like them. So the thing that I thought about this a lot, is like, if I was to give some kind of advice to the world is to increase this, this um, intelligence, because it's not a lot, but it's just like one thing I've written, written down was like, where, where were you born? I was born here. And you know, that's it. Just, Oh, I was born in Canada. Oh, wow. And did you live there your whole life? It's like, no, I lived here and then I lived here. Oh, how was that? You know, it's like almost like they're teaching people how to ask questions pretty much, but ask good questions that are open ended questions, not assumption questions. Oh, you're from here? Oh, you're from there? Like yes or no questions are, are very low intelligent cross-cultural questions, how I frame it. And I, and I can tell who's strong and who's not. Because basically people who have low self-esteem in cross-cultural and interactions, they only go yes or no questions based on their, their knowledge. So, oh, you're from here. No. 
So I, Keisha would get so mad at me because I would just I would just answer their questions. Oh, so you're from Chiang Mai? No. Oh, but your your mom is from Chiang Mai. No. Oh, but you're like this. No. But you like this, right? Sometimes. <laughs> and they're like, what's wrong? And then they would get angry at Keisha. They're like, he's so frustrating. I'm like, I am not. And she's Keisha, just tell it, man, just explain. It's like, no. I know I'm what they're I know what they're trying to ask. So I'm like Marcy. It's like hurry up and explain it before they get frustrated and keep asking the questions because I know I'm what they like, want. And I always telling Ben, you know what they want, just give them what they want. And he said, No, I can't, I don't want to assume I know what they want, and this is what they're asking. So I'm just gonna answer what they're asking. And I would just be like, but you know what they're trying to ask. And then I just spill out everything before they can keep talking because it's just not going to go anywhere. And in my mind, I'm like, no, the better thing is that they're educated. I'm loving them more because I'm actually giving them some kind of pain that they're they're like not going to want this conversation or they're going to adjust because then I'm not going to. That's really that's a good I like that advice, Ben, even though we're laughing about that. Um, I love that you're saying like learn cross-cultural intelligence, have that emotional intelligence uh, that you're building, hopefully in your life, bleed over into how we engage with each other with our differences. That's great advice. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. We have enjoyed this so much. You guys are so fun to talk to. And I just appreciate from the bottom of my heart, your vulnerability, yes. your, your honesty, your just even giving us examples about your lives. Like people aren't often in a situation where they need to do this and you willingly did it as a gift to our listeners. So I just thank you so much for you. If Fail to Flourish has encouraged you on your emotional health journey, please share our content with social media and those that you love. It truly is such a privilege to watch what we've been creating be a help to so many. Also, we understand there are so many incredible opportunities for giving, but we would like to ask if you would consider a small monthly gift to help us keep producing content. There's actually a link in the description of every single episode for super easy giving, and we would so appreciate your consideration in this way. Please continue enjoying the podcast as it is created especially for you. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, Please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.